All right, welcome everybody to uh, the podcast, to Hell and Back. Yes, it's still to Hell and Back and it's 2020 and it's like, uh, you know, nine days into another year. Um, oh my God, from a news point of view, it's just been an unbelievable year already. I don't even want to get into that, but it's like, how could so many scary things happen all at once? Um, and yet that does affect all of us. Um, but anyway, um, it's the beginning of a new year from the point of view of the podcast, and it's continuing, you know, un uninterrupted, um, other than the breaks that I take because of various things that come up. But uh, welcome to the podcast today. Um, you might already know that the this is going to be the third in a series uh, having to do with that experience in life that gets you to say, what's the point of it all? What's the point of living? And so... Um, that's what we're going to get back to, but I have several other things I want to say. First, there's a lot, a lot of interesting news from the perspective of somebody who runs a podcast about DBT. Um, so I want to tell you those things. Uh, and then uh, I, I think I have three things to tell you and then uh, tell you my um, New Year's resolution. Um, so thing number one is a book, um, Building a Life Worth Living by Marsha Linehan. Just came out this week. Uh, you can get it anywhere, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Actually, I was in the next door town to where I live, Amherst, Massachusetts, the other night, and it was in the bookstore already. Somebody had it already, some bookstore had already gotten it. And, um, and it's, uh, it's the story, it's a memoir, it's the story of her life. Uh, and I haven't read much of it yet. I just received it last night, late, and I just haven't had a chance to plow into it. Um, but it's, um, but I did read the beginning of the foreword and I wanna read you a couple paragraphs. This is the foreword by, uh, Al Francis, who's a psychiatrist, uh, actually helped, he was the leader of writing up DSM-3 in psychiatry, he's a very well-known psychiatrist. He says, Marsha Linehan has personally treated hundreds of the most difficult patients, but her very first was by far the toughest. This was a troubled and troubling teenage girl who had been hospitalized for more than two years much of it spent isolated in seclusion. Her life had reduced itself to a repetitive cycle of self-harm from burning, cutting, violent headbanging, and suicide attempts. High doses of every conceivable medication, alone and in combination, and multiple trials of shock treatment had no effect. Psychotherapy appeared impossible because the girl was so bitterly angry and mistrustful. Her hospital record revealed how much helplessness, desperation, frustration, and anger she provoked in the staff. She was described as the most incurable patient they had ever seen and was unceremoniously discharged, uncured. But things worked out quite differently than anyone might have expected. The chaotic young girl matured into a highly successful woman became a psychotherapist and a therapy researcher, 
and went on to develop a remarkable behavioral therapy that has helped hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. She was, of course, Marsha Linehan. Marsha found a way out of her own personal hell that allowed her to lead others out of theirs. She developed practical ways of taming her own self-destructive and provocative behaviors that could easily be learned and widely taught. Just the beginning of the foreword of this book, um, really well-written and uh, heartfelt. Uh, Al Francis knew Marcia before anyone else that I ever knew knew Marcia in psychiatry. And he's the one that first mentioned her to me uh, on the day of a conference when I was seeking a consultation with him because he happened to be in the same building I was in. And, um, and he interviewed a patient with me who was in terrible shape. And uh, during the interview with the patient, he was sitting on the floor and I was sitting on the floor. We were all in the security room, uh, the three of us. And in the middle of the interview, he said, you know, I'm gonna make a suggestion. I don't know if you can do it. Do you have any money? No. Can you take a bus? No. Can you hitchhike? Yes. I think you should get out of this hospital, even though you're in terrible shape here, and hitchhike to Seattle, Washington, meaning 3,000 miles away. And there's this woman that no one seems to know named Marsha Linehan, and she's running a clinic for people like you. I think you should go there. I mean, he tells that story actually in the, in the, in the foreword a, a little bit uh, also. Um, so that's where I met, uh, where I talked to Al. It's the first time I ever heard the word Marsha Linehan. And uh, I looked her up and I uh, read an article pretty soon after that. And next thing I knew, I was on my way to Seattle because I thought it sounded really interesting what she was doing. And it was very different than what I was doing, which was a different model of treatment with borderline personality. It was psychoanalytic treatment. So anyway, I recommend the book, uh, whether you get it at a library or buy it or get it on your Kindle or whatever it is, I think it'll be interesting. Um, next thing, same week, another thing came out that's in a totally different way relevant to DBT, which is uh, an interview uh, by Oprah. Oprah is doing a series in 2020 to focus on people's well-being with the idea of trying to get out to the world what has helped people with their wellness, including their mental health. And the first thing she did was interview the other day, Lady Gaga in a 50 minute interview. And uh, that, uh, inter in that interview, which I was watching, in the middle of that interview, all of a sudden Lady Gaga is saying, Oh yeah, well, I've been helped by different things. It's been quite a struggle. She's, she, suffered, she has suffered a lot. She has a lot of chronic physical pain. Uh, you wouldn't know it from watching her sing and dance in a movie. Um, and she has a, a, a lot of mental health problems. She's had a psychotic episode. She's been hospitalized multiple times. She uh, was raped when she was 19 years old and she still has PTSD from that. So she's talking to Oprah about how she's been helped. And in the middle of it, she says, you know, and I've been doing dialectical behavioral therapy. And Oprah says, oh, you're in DBT? In a way that clearly Oprah knew about it. She said, oh yeah, you know, I have a doctor, my DBT doctor, Andy, 
uh, and uh, I've been learning all these skills that have made a lot of difference in my life. I'm going to tell you about them. And she goes on to talk to Oprah about the skill of radical acceptance. She talks to her about the skill of my wise mind and how you need when you're in emotion mind, how you need to access rational mind to help you find your way to wise mind where you can make better decisions. And she talks about problem solving. She teaches Oprah about what it means to check the facts when you're having strong emotions. And then if your emotions match reality, then you need to solve reality. So you do problem solving and she gives her an example. And she goes on later in the interview to talk about using the skill of opposite action. So it's really quite amazing. It's really, uh, not, it's not the first moment that people who are well known have known about DBT, but I think it's going to become a sort of a, a nodal moment in the relationship between DBT and the broader culture of our country or the world. Uh, I've already gotten some emails from friends in Sweden who had watched this interview and wanted to talk to me about it. So I recommend you go just go to YouTube if you haven't already, because I know the word has spread fast about this, at least in the DBT circles. Go to YouTube and look up uh, Oprah and Lady Gaga full interview. And you'll find at about minute number 19 and minute number 27 stuff about DBT. Uh, but the whole interview is kind of interesting. It's a very impressive thing that, la that Lady Gaga is putting herself out there in this kind of way. Now, next announcement. Um, I'm both uh, nervous and excited about, and so is my guest for this next podcast. Starting next week for three weeks in a row, I'm going to be uh, having a conversation with Seth Axelrod. Seth is a PhD psychologist at Yale University, and he's the head of DBT services there. He's also the co-chair of an annual uh, uh, conference on borderline personality disorder. Uh, done along with NEA BPD, of which Perry Hoffman was the president. And, uh, and Seth is also an extraordinary teacher about DBT and other things. This year, last year, he won the award uh, from the International Society for Improvement and Teaching of DBT, the Outstanding Educator Award, which is only given every two or three years. Uh, and he's maybe the eighth recipient of this award in its history. Um, he's a really interesting man, um, and that's not at all what I'm going to be talking to him about. I'm going to be talking to him about that he's now had a several-year battle with cancer, uh, an aggressive form of cancer, a life-threatening form of cancer, and he's still battling it. And he's uh, willing, courageously and nervously, as he told me, he and I are going to talk this weekend about it, uh, to... Um, come on and talk about his experience of being diagnosed, his experience of being treated, what he and his family and, and his, in his work life too, what he's gone through uh, with cancer and how he's battled with uh, side effects and with medications and with his fears uh, and everything. And, and, and in particular, once we get around to it, how some of the concepts and skills from within DBT that he teaches day in and day out have really been helpful to him. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I've had a couple of these kind of interviews before, as you may know, if you've followed the podcasts, one with Cedar Coons about the suicide of her sister, 
uh, and one with uh, Natalia Garcia about the death of her child. Uh, I've had interviews with Melanie Harned about uh, what PTSD is and how, how you deal with trauma. So this will be sort of in another series of interviews like that. And I think um, um, I just recommend it. I think it'll be interesting. And who, of, who among us doesn't either have cancer or know somebody with cancer or know somebody that didn't make it with cancer. So um, I really think it's going to be a really relevant thing. Finally, before technically starting, though, actually, this is the segue to talking about what's the point of life, which is... Uh, my New Year's resolution. I was thinking about New Year's resolution because I was listening to a thing from, um, what's his name? The late night, Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert was uh, interviewing uh, Larry David uh, and he's talking about New Year's resolutions the other day. And that just got me thinking about New Year's resolutions. And I thought I should have a New Year's resolution. I don't usually have a New Year's resolution. And they were talking about silly ones and funny ones. And then I thought, well, I could make some silly ones too. But then I thought, no, actually, then I thought of the podcast. I'm saying this on the podcast. It isn't like I told anybody else I made a New Year's resolution. I'm telling you guys. And then here's the New Year's resolution because it has directly to do with the podcast. Um, I resolve in 2020 to continue to do the podcasts that I do for the same reason that I began them and with the same methods that I began them. The same reason I began them, why did I begin them? It's really helpful for me to keep coming back to why I started doing these because actually you may think it's for you, but it actually isn't. I mean, if you're listening, that's great. If you get anything out of it, that's wonderful. I'm really happy about that, but that's not the point. The point of the podcasts when I started and really the most important point continues to be um, that it causes me, it's a prompting event. It leads me to have to think more deeply about things I think about anyway, or things I teach on a regular basis or things that I've learned about. It makes me think more deeply. And that is the main reason I started them. I was looking for something that got me to do that. And, um, and in particular about concepts in DBT or concepts in, but more broadly than that, concepts about how people survive adversity and, and how they transform adversity and how they climb out of hell, like that story about Marshall Linehan that we just went over in that book. Um, so that's, the, that's it. And, and why does that matter that I would resolve to do that? Because once you start doing something for a certain reason, that reason gets supplanted by another reason happens all the time. People start to do something for one reason, and next thing they know, it's they're doing it for other reasons. And, and there's been like a hostile takeover by the outside world. So, you know, somebody might start thinking, oh, I'm doing my podcasts in order to meet your needs. I'm doing my podcasts in order to improve your lives. I'm doing my podcasts in order to do the topics that you have suggested to me on emails, or to do it in the way that you think I should do it. And I'm very vulnerable to that sort of thing because I've always wanted to be a good Boy Scout. So I really have to keep reclaiming that the reason I do these podcasts is to deepen myself. And if you gain something from it, that's wonderful. But if you don't gain something from it, I still do it. So that if none of you tuned in ever and no one ever listens to this, it still works. I mean, it, it, this isn't a popularity contest and it isn't to make money and it isn't to 
to spread the word about my marketing my work or anything like that. I mean, it could do any of those things, but, uh, but that's not the point. Why do I say the same method? I want to keep with the same method of these podcasts. What is the method? Well, only you would know if you listen to many podcasts, uh, which I don't listen to that many podcasts, but I have listened to other podcasts. But um, my podcasts are basically raw, uncut, unproduced, unpolished kind of podcasts. I mean, they are, and, and for my purpose, it doesn't matter that I get a production team or I start with music or I start with the same thing every time, or I have the same catchy jingle, or I tell the same story, type of story every time, or there's, you know, I, I've had all those thoughts repeatedly. And I've had people contact me and say, here's what I think you should do with your, with your podcast. And there are people who know about podcasts. I have studiously kept myself from not knowing very much about podcasts, because then it makes it easier to just do it my way. And then, uh, so I'm, I, I'm, I swear by my podcast that I resolve to keep doing it with the same goals and with the same methods, the uncut, unpolished kind of podcast, which probably makes it more likely that you actually find out a little bit more about who I am actually, rather than the polished version of me. Um, and so I just wanted to make this uh, resolution to you because who else would care anyway? And not that you would care. I mean, I'm not saying you care. You're probably sitting there thinking like about this whole podcast topic. What's the point? What's the point? What is the point that I'm actually talking about? What's the point? And what's the point about that? I'm talking to you about my New Year's resolution. It's kind of like stupid. I mean, right? But I am. I'm doing that. I'm done with it. Now we're going to move on. <laughs> but but I, I, I just wanted to let you know some of that. Now, um, what's the larger point? Because I said that my resolution segues into the, back into the point of today's point, um, which is um, not just what's the point of this podcast and what's the resolution I make about this podcast, but it's kind of like, what's the point? Solutions for pointlessness. And, um, and so I want to tell you, and this sort of suddenly goes broader and deeper uh, from my point of view about many people, not everybody. I mean, people get to the point where they're asking what's the point of life for a hundred different reasons if it's a hundred different people. So it isn't like I have the corner of the market on how to explain that. But I do, I, I have in, in going over this podcast, reviewed every single patient I've ever treated that I could think of or every family I've ever worked with or people that I've known or myself and in my own family. I've really gone over instances where people have come to the point in their life where they wonder what is the point. And I've really thought about them and thought, what is it? What do they all have in common? What is it? Not sure what they all have in common because there's different versions. But one thing that happens a lot is something like the possible takeover of my podcast by outside ideas or by other agendas or other methods. It's you're living your life. I'll tell you it this way, another just story. I was living my life the first 12 years of my life in a small town, town of about 10,000. Grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle, four cousins, four brothers and sisters, my parents, friends, little neighborhood, not much money, baseball, swimming, 
getting on your bike every day, going to school on your bike. All, that was my life growing up. Um, and every day after school, getting together with my cousins or with the friends or, or playing ball. And it was a, it was a really good life uh, for me. Uh, I knew no other life. I didn't even know that it was such a good life. I mean, because it wasn't all that good. I mean, there were all kinds of things that weren't that great. There were bad things that happened. There were people that died that I knew, an unusual number of people that died while I was a child compared to other people that I know, unless you live in a war zone or something. So it was kind of weird. But when I look back on it, those 12 years of my life were kind of an uninterrupted, engaged, small town boy life. Um, and, um, and how do I know that? Because when I was 12, we moved. And we moved to the big city, Portland, Oregon. And I went to a big school where there were more kids and the kids were bigger and they were smarter and they were more athletic than the little town I came from. And I sort of prided myself on wanting to be a really good basketball player. But I found that the dislocation, which is one of the causes I think of pointlessness, of the experience of what's the point in life is that you get dislocated from your primary self and yourself in relation to others and yourself in relation to your environment that that's one of many, many, many things that can happen to interrupt your relationship to yourself. Because I had a certain relationship to myself that I was unconscious of until after it was broken. And then there I was in Portland going to junior high school and then high school, never forming the friendships like the ones I had before, having lost some of the connections that I had in the little town I was in. And, and my goals changed. I would say my goals in the small town are that, that sort of naive state of my goals were actually to just get up each day and go to school or go see my friends or go out or go on my bike or go swimming or get in a fight with somebody or something. My goals were to live each day. That's all. I just was living within a bubble of moment by moment life experience in a certain way by comparison to later. Because later, what was I doing? Starting in seventh grade, as I recall it, and I'm pretty consistent about remembering all the aspects of this, I wanted to get really good grades. I didn't care about getting really good grades before that. I wanted to be a really good student. I wanted to be the best in the class. I wanted to be the best athlete in the school. I wanted to work hard on my running because I wasn't a very fast runner. I wanted to run for student body council offices. I wanted to connect with people who were prominent at that school, um, like kids that were popular. I never gave a damn about that kind of stuff much before. I did like playing tetherball. I liked playing kickball. I liked go chasing the girls after school or having them chase me in fourth or fifth grade all of that good stuff, but, but this was a new world. It was a world of a more disconnected boy trying to be good, trying to be successful, trying to make it. That was my adaptation to the fact that a fundamental connection had broken or was interrupted or was distorted between my inner voice that would author each day and the outer world where I was trying to connect. Because, because I had been dislocated. And I really absolutely think that that was a major turning point in my life. And I never would have asked the question up to the age of 12. I'm convinced 
I never would have asked the question, what's the point of life? What's the point of what I'm doing today? Even if it was like trivial stuff, which of course it usually was from whatever point of view look at it. It was just sort of like small town stuff I was doing. But oh my God, I started to ask, am I doing important things? And, uh, and I, I, in those next six years living in Portland and going to these schools and doing it very well, I was a very high achiever at the things I did, not the athletic ones that I really wanted, but the school ones that were like second, my second choice, but I was better at them than I was at being an athlete. And so I became a really good student and all of that I'm succeeding. But if you had asked me, do you ever wonder what's the point of all this? I, and if I was honest with you, I would have said, yes, I do. It's a little bit hollow. It's like you get the next A on a, on a paper. You get the next 100 on an exam. You're aiming to be a valedictorian. You're aiming to get into a, a, a known college. These kind of things became sort of what was driving me. It's not, it's, as you can hear now, reflecting back on what I said about the podcast, that was not what I wanted to aim for with the podcast. The podcast was more my small town voice in a way, rather than my big city voice. And so I just think this thing that happens to people, and it happens for a lot of different reasons. Let me just go on a little about this. I mentioned in the last podcast, a girl with anorexia, a young woman with anorexia, but she started out, she became anorectic at age 16. And I said something there that you, if you listen to that, that you may or may not have picked up or made much out of. I can't remember exactly how I said it. I didn't go back and listen to it. So I don't know how it sounded to you. This girl was a, I think I mentioned last time, a very competitive swimmer and a really good student. And she was actually a relatively happy camper. And she got to be 14 and she never had thought that much. She sort of had a primary relationship with her body that she owned her body. She was located in her body. It was a strong body and she was comfortable with her body. More or less, as much as a 14 year old girl can be in our society, which actually has already so many impediments. And then a doctor said to her, gee, your BMI, your BMI is, now, is now lower. What's my BMI? Well, that, that, that tells us uh, your, you know, your, your, your body weight and what it should be. And you're actually, you, have a, you, now are, you, you weigh less and your BMI has come down a little bit. Now she had never thought, oh, I have a problem with my body weight. And, and nobody had thought she had a problem with her body weight as far as she knew. But from that moment, it was sort of like that cracked her primary relationship between herself and her body and her eating. And all of a sudden she became conscious of something beyond herself, the way I became conscious of success at school. And she became conscious of my, her body. She started thinking, oh my God. My doctor noticed my body and said that about my body. Look how benign that is compared to the trauma some people go through. I mean, just a comment from a doctor that she remembers as a turning point where she started in, uh, and the way I'm putting it today is I think it fractured or distorted or created a crack between her primary voice, her primary self, and kind of what her choices were and how she thought about things. And now she's getting preoccupied with, gee, I wonder about my body. Next thing you know, she's losing weight. 
Next thing you know, she gets on a tear of losing weight, which probably represented other things too. Next thing you know, she can't swim anymore. She's not strong enough. And next thing you know, she's in a hospital as a teenager, her first of many, many, many eating disorder programs. It's like, oh, and she undoubtedly has been asking. I know because I interviewed her for an hour at the current state mental hospital she's at in Massachusetts. And she absolutely wonders what's the point of life. And she's been trying to kill herself for years. And she's been in a hospital for three and a half consecutive years as this very talented, very smart person who wonders what the point is of life. But, the, but the, that was one of many things that then happened to her. Another thing was sexual abuse, sexual trauma by somebody. So these things, learning something like that, having a dislocation, having a trauma, having PTSD, developing an eating disorder, having a substance use disorder, having the outside world take over your relationship with yourself, I think can be a major step in the direction of what's the point of life. Oh gosh, what's the name of the singer? Amy Winehouse. I don't know if any of you have ever known much about Amy Winehouse. She died years ago um, of an overdose. Amy Winehouse was uh, Tony Bennett, thought she was the most talented jazz singer he had ever heard. And she was just like post-teenage at that point. Um, she won a Grammy Award while she was in a rehab program. Couldn't go and it, couldn't go and accept it. There's movies about her. Amy Winehouse, when you see the movie about her, I think it's just called Amy, I forget exactly. Um, and it goes through childhood movies and stuff like that. This was a girl who, if you watched her up to the age of about 13, just had this marvelous voice. She was absolutely just kind of like, she was just like a bratty little girl who had a friends in the neighborhood and they would get together and pretend they were doing concerts with pretend microphones and they would sing and they had family movies of her doing that. And you could just see, she's just another nose picking kid. And then, and then you, but then you'd hear her voice and say, wow, she has a really nice voice. All of that was going fine. Then somebody noticed her voice. And once somebody noticed her voice and they started to talk about, oh my God, you're really talented. You could do this, you could do that. And her father gets involved in a very proprietary way. And her agent gets involved. And then she gets a boyfriend and a boyfriend's involved. And all these men are working to turn her voice into a lot of money and make her famous. And next thing you know, she's on the road day in and day out, exhausted and surviving by using drugs. And next thing you know, she's battling that and she's still producing amazing music. And next thing you know, she's dead of this. You know, here's somebody who wondered after, after a while, she had to wonder, what is the point? What is the point? And I want to say again, to me, part of the problem was when you lose track of the point of your life, not because of your own choosing, but because there's been an interruption between yourself and I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound new agey, but who you were meant to be or something like that. 
like, but it's your, when you are disconnected from your soul, from your creative self, or just from your own voice, because everybody's creative if they're actually speaking as themselves, and not because that's what they're, their friends think they should do, or their teachers think they should do, or their parents think they should do, or their doctor thinks they should do, or, or somebody else, or, you know, where things get appropriated or to something, some other point other than just having your own voice. And therefore, obviously, if you think like the way I think, part of the pathway, when you're stuck in a paralyzing state of what is the point of life, is to realize, to go back and trace the history of that in yourself. I would recommend somebody, if they were so motivated, of course, when you think, what's the point? I mean, why would anybody think there's a point in doing it? That's already a problem. But if they were to do it, somebody could write their own history, write their own little memoir, write their own story and say, at what point did you lose yourself? At what point did you go off and be interrupted if there was ever a time you can remember that you weren't interrupted, that you were just being yourself and you were being, doing whatever you were doing, but then somehow something happened, something traumatic or a loss or a loss. I've had multiple patients when I was thinking through my whole roster of people who've ended up wondering what's the point, who if there's somebody in your life who, is, who feels like you have joined your personal self with them, and you, this is your somebody who's a really, and I don't mean this is your soulmate or your romantic partner. If this is just a buddy and your buddy and you are really together, you are an entity together that reinforce your own voices. But then something happens to that person and you lose them. That now it could be you start to wonder what's the point because yourself was merged with the other person just the way somebody who has a certain activity in life. I, I have a, somebody I've worked with who was an actress. And when she turned out for various reasons, wasn't able to continue to be an actress, she lost something very important. And it was very hard for her to think, now what's the point? Somebody else who was trying to be an actress in New York City that I once knew got lupus and it kept interrupting her capacity to actually do her acting work. And then it was like, oh, well, you can work in an office and she could successfully work in an office and wonder what is the point? So I just want to direct your attention to of all the other factors, and there are many that can lead someone down the road to the point where they aren't sure what the point is of living. One of them can be, and I would look for it and try to work from it, um, the loss of the connection to yourself, which is actually still potentially right around the corner. That's what I always think when I'm working with someone in that situation, like how can this person stop doing the things that rob them of themselves, rob them of that connection, rob them of that spontaneity, rob them of that authenticity so that they can actually do, even if it's like, to crawl on the floor and turn a somersault might be the most authentic thing they've done in a year. And that might be the beginning of a change. Why? Just because they actually did the silly thing they thought of doing. You know, they've stopped doing what they think they should be doing, which is quite a trap. And sometimes because things weren't working out, the only thing somebody can do is nothing. 
and yet they're not really doing nothing, but they can, they can drop out of life. People drop out of life thinking there's no point in life. I was in college. And as you can hear, my trajectory was that after six years in Portland, I then got into a really good college, to Harvard College. And I went off to the East Coast, which I actually didn't care about going to at all. I tried to get myself psyched for it. I was going to a very well-known good college. And, and yet that really wasn't where my heart of hearts was. My heart of hearts was in Oregon. And I would have been a, an Oregon boy that would have stayed and gone to school in Oregon and, and to whatever college, hopefully University of Oregon, because I loved it. Um, but there I was going off to Harvard and, and not comfortable with it and not feeling like that represented my own voice. And I went through three years of school there. Um, and I did the best I could in the classes. I tried to keep being good. But that way of salvaging your identity by being the best in the class, I couldn't do that anymore. I wasn't bad, but it's hard to be the best in the class at Harvard, where you've got all of these other strivers and people who are smart and talented who are doing stuff. And, and, and so I wasn't, I wasn't that. I was doing okay from the outside point of view. But what was I doing? I was wandering around Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts at night on Saturday nights, disconnected from everybody and myself, buying a pound of fudge at Brigham's ice cream place and standing on the corner at Harvard Square eating an entire fucking pound of fudge by myself while I'm watching other people and thinking, look, why is everybody paired up two by two and I'm only one by one here? You know, and it's sort of like, I better just go back to my room and study some more and, and practice the guitar because I was teaching myself the guitar to salvage myself, you know, uh, and, and that was, uh, it went on like that for a while. And then I did have some friends, but they were far too purposeful for me. They were like a group of friends that were like really high achieving people from around Washington DC and New York City that had gone to prep schools and they had big ideas and they were writing for national magazines already. And one of them already was making a million dollars for the Dreyfus Fund because he was advising them in investments when he was 20 years old. And I thought, well, all of these people, I thought, holy cow, what about just going fishing? You know, what about just take, getting you on your bike? and riding to the Charles River and swimming somewhere where you're not supposed to, or something like that. That's like a real thing, like if you grow up where I grew up. It's like I was so far removed from myself and I was living that and I was living it relatively successfully. And I was more and more wondering by my junior year of college, what is the point? And where's this all going? I don't see myself writing for national magazines moving to New York or Washington, D.C., when can I go back to Oregon? You know, and, and stuff like that. And yet now I've lost out on Oregon. I, that disappeared a long time ago. So it was very difficult for me. And yet you wouldn't have known that if you knew me, you know, one step removed from me. So what did I do? I started thinking, I got to get the hell out of here. And I was in college. I was doing okay. And my parents were invested in that. And... Um, the only thing keeping me in college was that if I were to leave college, I would immediately be drafted to the Vietnam War. It would have been like 1969 and in my junior year. So I just wouldn't, I didn't want to go. I didn't believe in that war and I didn't want to go fight in that war. I had two brothers that went to that war, two older brothers. And so I stayed in college until the day that 
they drew a lottery and I got a number that indicated that I would never be drafted. I just lucked out. And I went and withdrew from college. And I got out of college and I roamed around and this was the most brilliant thing that ever happened to me was the attempt to rediscover myself. Not that I was thinking of it that way. I was actually quite disillusioned, didn't know what I was gonna do and I just had a backpack and a uh, um, sleeping bag and I went and got, a, got equipment and food and I hitchhiked up to New Hampshire and I started hiking in the White Mountains and I was there for about six weeks by myself and then I was hiking in Canada and then I was hiking in the Adirondack Mountains in New York. All of this went on for several months. I was reading. I was starting to write in a diary. Um, I was writing songs. I wrote my first song ever. It was about a, a mountain in uh, New Hampshire. If any of you have ever been to the White Mountains, it's called Mount Musalaki. And it turned into a song that I sang a thousand times for my children when they would go to sleep to the point where they were just sick of it. And so one of my children at age 20 went with a group of friends and they went to New Hampshire and they went right to Mount Musalaki. And he said, oh my God, it's a real thing. Uh, so, but I, I, I started to be back connected to my own voice. And I was kind of disappearing into the wilderness. And then I took a job in Boston. And then I lived with an African-American family in Boston in an African-American neighborhood where I was the only white person for about a mile in any direction. And where I was scared sometimes, but I got quite connected there. And where I got to know the eight children in this family that I was living in this house with this family that lived in poverty. And we got food from the US government and the father was in and out of jail. And it's sort of like, it was like totally so, so otherworldly to me that it absolutely engaged me. And I took these kids to the conserv Boston Conservatory because a couple of them had musical talent and they had special programs and it was a lot of fun. Um, so it became like a year of really reconnecting with things that matter to me. And I think I would not have asked, if somebody asked me that year, do you ever think what's the point? I would have said, I don't really have time to think of what's the point. Because I don't think there's any answer to that question. There's not a good rational answer to that question. What's the point? You know, the girl with anorexia. Well, the point of life is to get below 86 pounds. That's the point. Everything else, is failure. Everything else is not worthwhile. The point of somebody like me in high school was to be a valedictorian. If you're not going to be the valedictorian, who are you? Is the way I thought for a while. Very screwed up and very much like, because if you've lost your soul, if you've lost your connection to yourself, you start to latch on to these definitions that come from outside yourself. I call it outside in thinking which is actually a term I've learned is used in business in a very positive way. I don't mean it in a positive way in psychology, I, I'm, and I'm making it up. I don't think it's used this way anywhere, but outside in thinking is to me when you latch on to definitions of life and behavior that come from outside your actual soul, outside yourself, and then you, you hook onto those things and you hang on to those things, even if it's totally empty, to get below 86 pounds or to get 100% on your exam or to get to be this or to do this or do this or do this or be the best in your company or 
all of these things that become kind of like things you go for, but actually they're rather hollow. And so you, you've lost connection. So I think you do wonder, gee, I'm a highlight. You, even people have been highly successful business people in our country, highly successful politicians, highly successful actors and musicians have ended up killing themselves. Wondering what's the point? What, this is like hollow, this is useless. Yes, I'm very successful, but actually for, towards what end? And so I don't think there's any really good answer to what, what is the point. It's just not a good dialogue. I think if you're asking the question, what's the point? Something's been lost already. And the point is, because when there is a point, the point is just that you're living. The point is that you're doing the next thing. And that doesn't mean you're happy even. You can be quite engaged and quite unhappy, but there's a point of every day. There's a battle to be fought. There's something to be done. And, and it's what you're doing. You're not thinking in a hollow way, what's the point of my life? So I do think that when you, if you are a person listening to this podcast, who yourself has gone down this alley, or you know somebody that you're close to, or you're a therapist and you work with somebody who struggles with this kind of thing, or some version of it, I think there's many steps to take that come from where I come from, which is the, what I just told you about from my own personal perspective on this, but now fold that into DBT. And let me give you like several perspectives of where to go with this. Perspective number one, I would say, is something like um, the perspective of this, if this is what's going on, and I started to talk about it before by saying, write your story or tell your story to someone, or go over your story, and remember that you weren't always this way. There was a point, you may have to go back pretty far in your life, because maybe when you went to first grade, maybe you started to be taken over by the outside world and all of its expectations and what you should do. And then once you start to invest yourself in what you should do, rather than who you are, you're already at the potential beginning of What's the point? So the first step or first perspective is assess it. Assess it. Figure out what is your story? Um, how did this happen? Can you remember the time when it wasn't this way? Can you remember what were the turning points? Like the equivalent for me of leaving little small town Albany, Oregon as a turning point the equivalent for me of losing my closest friend as an adult in teaching DBT when she died of cancer. And when for a while, I'd say for the next year, I wondered what is the point of teaching DBT? She's not alive anymore. Until actually I sort of came to terms with it and grieved her and incorporated her as part of me and carried on. Uh, when someone loses somebody, what's the point? You know, you, you do recover from many of these things given time and given circumstances that allow you to recover, given, given the lack of pressure that allows you to recover from whatever you're recovering from. So one thing is to assess it and to try to identify what is the nature of your story because it's different than everybody else's story. And if you can identify the nature of story, you might start to understand in a way that is hard to communicate what the causes and conditions are of why you end up thinking that life is pointless. And it isn't the same as being suicidal, by the way. 
thinking that wondering what is the point of life is potentially one of the building blocks of ending up suicidal and really wanting to die and actually trying to take your life. But actually way more people end up um, going through long periods of their life or at least some periods and some people may be really long periods thinking what's the point without actually seriously getting close to suicide. It isn't necessarily tantamount to suicide, but it can be a step in the direction of suicide. Suicide usually also involves a level of intensity of suffering on top of feeling like what's the point. I mean, I have, I've treated people that come in and in their, their college age and they say, ah, I've lost the point of life. I don't know what the point of life is. It's a common thing to think about in college. I mean, and because for lots of reasons, I think, but, um, but, that, but they aren't necessarily suffering in the way that I mean, which is that kind of suffering that you're wondering how you're gonna make it through the next moment. Major depression suffering, severe anxiety suffering, panic disorder suffering, bipolar suffering. The kind of suffering that actually makes you wonder I can't do this anymore. And you get down to the point when you are suicidal of that there's only two choices left in life. After having life used to look like a bowl of cherries or there were lots of options or there were ways out. Now it comes down to you think there's only two ways to go. Either I stay alive and I suffer miserably and intensively every day and, I, and there's no obvious way out or I die. And once you get down to that point, from in my point of view as a as a therapist and a psychiatrist you know i try to see if somebody's at that point because people do get to that point where those are the only two options left and then it's clear to me even if it's hard to do it what to do about that what to do about that is you have to try to find a third option you have to find an option that is neither the option of i have to suffer forever and this is it and i can't stand it versus I have to die. You have to aim for a third option, some activity, some relationship. Sometimes the people get hooked into DBT. DBT is that third option for a period of time. Or some other treatment is that third option. Or as I've told once in one podcast, I think the story of somebody who got down to that point in time at about age 23 years old and the other option that our therapist helped her cultivate was the idea of running the New York Marathon that she should run the New York Marathon before she dies. Because she always thought she would do that even though she wasn't a runner. And that gave her a third option and it actually kept her alive. And it actually helped her heal. And it helped her recover herself. And she was somebody from a prominent and wealthy family, but little, little beknownst to the parents, she had suffered several traumatic events during her teenage years. And she was just, it just about killed her. Um, but this helped her. But this is different than what I'm talking about now. I just wanted to distinguish it because it sounds so close to a discussion about suicide and there's uh, other factors that lead to suicide. But this can be one. So anyway, the first thing is to be assessing yourself or assessing somebody else if you're assessing them. Like what did happen here? What is the storyline? Where did things go awry? You know, because just knowing that all by itself can, for some people, be helpful. Like it makes sense out of something where you're just living in a desert, a desert of meaning. And now 
you create meaning because then you can start to say, oh yeah, right. Yeah, this, it wasn't always this way. I, I had this blow in life and I had this blow in life and I had this expectation that I failed at. And then I had this thrust on me and, and, I, and I lost who I was as a child, my primary voice. I lost who I was as a, as a connected individual with connected friends and things like that. So it, it, that's gone away. But once you identify that, you, it actually creates the possibility of hope because you start saying, oh, it's gone now, it's gone forever. But actually there's a little part of your mind that knows that once you've identified that, no, maybe there's a possibility of recovery, of finding your way back to something. It won't be the same thing. And you have to start where? So this is the, the next thing after assessment. And obviously I'm not being very comprehensive about some of these things, but I'm sort of following a, a line of thought. The next thing I think of is acceptance, which is a huge topic, of course, in DBT with, with lots of, you know, I wrote a, a book about principles of DBT and one of the three, three principles are the, the paradigm of acceptance and all the ways that it weaves itself into the treatment and into life. And I think that acceptance really means something that's a little bit um, counterintuitive about if you're in a state of mind where you think there's no point, you, you, you really think that's unacceptable. And the people around you think it's unacceptable to be in that state of mind, to be in that state of life. You really are, it's unacceptable and, and, you, and you feel resigned to it. That's different than accepting it. The term radical acceptance, for instance, in DBT is actually you embrace something. You have anger all the time, you accept that you have anger all the time. And that's a different relationship to anger. You have anxiety, you accept that you have anxiety if you can't change it. If you accept you have anxiety and that changes your relationship to anxiety, it actually opens up some doors and makes you more resilient. You have a sense of pointlessness in life, you embrace pointlessness. You take it on and say, I'm not gonna just re-resign to this, I'm not gonna fight it all the time, all right, my experience in life is that uh, it's pointless. There's no, there's no real point. And so just sort of inhabit that space. Who says that? Oh, Rachel Maddow, if you watch Rachel Maddow, she says, you know, watch this space. She says just before a commercial. Um, so inhabit the space rather than trying to get out of it all the time, rather than judging yourself for it, get the story behind it, get in there, see it as part of your life, hopefully temporary, but you don't know that uh, in that moment. And so just, you know, accept, okay, this is where I am. It's like accepting chronic pain rather than fighting it every day, because the sense of, point, of futility and pointlessness in life is a form of chronic pain. So it's kind of like, okay, be mindful of it, observe it, notice it, try to remove the judgments or let the judgments about it go. Be there, accept it, realize that you're attached to other things like you shouldn't be that way, you should be doing what you th used to think in your life you should be doing. You should be, you know, you're 52 years old, and you think I should be married by now 
and I should have children by now, and I should be in a family by now, because I always thought I would be, but it hasn't turned out that way. And so it's kind of like, so what's the point? What's the point of life? Since I'm not doing what my whole game plan was, but actually, even before you had that game plan as a little girl, or as, as you had that game plan, you also may have been uh, more um, alive with that, you know? You may have been playing with that, but actually you've lost the capacity to think that what you're doing is okay. So you really have to get back to, okay, it's okay that I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. I feel this pointlessness. Now what do I do? And, and to recognize that things keep changing and notice the sub with subtlety that things change every day. And even though you think you're just doing the same thing, the same pointless life day after day, actually it's never the same. It is never the same. And if you can accept not only that you are who you are and you're going through the state of mind and the life that you're going through, but also that actually it's shifting, 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 shifting. It's like a kaleidoscope every day. It turns a little more and it turns a little more and it actually is a little different if you let yourself notice that. And maybe on a certain day, if you're noticing that, you wake up to a day where you say, you know what? I think I'm going to cook granola. And I've never done that in my life, and I don't know how to do it, but actually, God damn it, I'm going to make granola. And you, you wake up, and, and it's just one of a million thoughts that came up in the kaleidoscope, but it's one you just decide, you know what? Why not? I'm not doing anything else. And it could be that you, the moment you start making granola is like the moment I put my backpack on and went to New Hampshire. It's like, yeah, okay, you did something by your own power. You did something out of your own brain, whatever anyone else thinks about it. Um, something like that. So that's the acceptance. The whole acceptance piece allows things to be as they are, allows the world to keep churning inside yourself you try to inhabit the bubble of the present moment rather than think I shouldn't be in this moment. I shouldn't be in this life. I shouldn't have this state of mind. Have that state of mind. It's where you are already. Inhabit it and see what the way out might be just one step at a time. The other things I was going to talk about, and this is another thing that probably won't change about my podcast. I never get to everything that I mean to get to. So it's just happening again. But I was going to talk about and I'll say, I'll do a highly condensed version because I can't bump into next week because I'm, I'm talking with Seth Axelrod next week and I look forward to that. So, but I just want to say the other things are ways to change yourself, to, to give yourself a chance that there might be a small window of change. And that might be that you do any of a number of 15 or 20 things to change your biology. Because you don't know if you change your biology, whether it'll change your brain, which will change your next day, which will open an opportunity. So maybe you change your diet. Maybe you start doing a different kind of exercise. Maybe you take a martial arts class. Maybe you do yoga. Maybe you walk into the woods knowing that actually there's a fair amount of research that the experience of awe, A-W-E, the experience of awe actually has a biological impact. So even going somewhere that's beautiful, looking at a sunset, walking in the woods, doing anything. So anything to change your biology might change things enough to open a door. Anything to change your environment. 
you might relocate yourself. Let's say you live in one room of your house most of the time. You decide, fuck it, I'm going to inhabit the living room. Uh, I'm going to live in the basement now. I'm going to go upstairs and live in that room that nobody's been in because we think it's haunted. Uh, I'm going to build a little shack in the backyard and I'm going to live there or a treehouse. I'm going to live in a yurt now. I mean, any of these things, relocate, 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 because the current location has gotten fused with your image that life is not worth living. So God knows what will happen if you relocate or if you reposition yourself within your family or you take a new role within your family or you go with a different person, a, a sibling or, a, or, or a, an aunt or an uncle or a cousin. You go do something with them who you have never done anything with before. And all of a sudden, a little door opens because you're changing your environment. You're not letting yourself just get fused and victimized in a certain environment where there's no change and you're always feeling like there's no, what's the point, what's the point, what's the point? So I wanted to talk about changing your biology, changing any aspect of your environment and changing your habits. To change one little habit. Steve Jobs was suffering a lot. What did he do? He went from going several days in a row where he would only eat yellow foods. And then he would only eat green foods for a while. And then he'd only eat red, you know, and weird stuff. Then he'd only drink juice for a while. Then people go on fasts for a while, right? Any of these things introduces a new element into the equation and you never know what's around that next corner. So I'm going to stop there. I'm tempted to go on, but I'm also out of time. So um, I, I hope that uh, out of this whole rant that there's been something of interest to somebody out there. But as I told you at the beginning, even if there isn't, it's okay with me. All right. So anyone who tunes in next week will get, get to hear, uh, have this conversation with Seth uh, Axelrod about what it's been like to cope with the adversity of cancer. Uh, and how he has done it, uh, as well as he has, which he's continued to be the outstanding DBT educator in the world. I mean, that's pretty good when you're dealing with cancer. Um, all right, everybody. Adios, amigos, ciao. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Bye.